1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Carol J. Adams about two new books, Burger, from the Object Lesson series by Bloomsbury, and Protest Kitchen, a cookbook with over 50 vegan recipes and practical daily actions from Konari Press. Both books were published in 2018. Carol is a feminist vegan advocate, activist, and independent scholar. You probably know her best as the author of The Sexual Politics of Meat, now available in a 25th anniversary edition from Bloomsbury. She is the co-editor of several important anthologies, including most recently Ecofeminism, Feminist Intersections with Other Animals and the Earth with Lori Grin. Carol's also the author of books on living as a vegan, including Even Vegans Die, a practical guide to caregiving, acceptance, and protecting your legacy of compassion, with co-authors Patti Brightman and Virginia Messina. The two books we're going to talk about today are, I think, an excellent example of the ways that Carol's work has always spoken easily to both scholars and popular audiences, and the ways that her work is both highly theoretical and remarkably practical. So, Carol Adams, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Carrie. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. Uh, Carol and I met several years ago when I was still a grad student in Texas. Um, I had never read The Sexual Politics of Meat, but when you came up for the keynote with your own walk-up music, with (laughs) the DJ mix in your voice... (laughs) This human is living my dream.
0: Uh, (laughs) And that's on the website, so everybody can hear it.
1: (laughs) It's really quite an experience. So you're very kind to us as grad students. So truly welcomed us as colleagues. Thank you for that and for talking to me again today.
0: Oh, it's really my pleasure. And thanks for all the remarkable work you're doing and and your own book and your own writing on, on the issue of food.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, Carol, we always start these interviews with background. Uh, So in the Burger book, you tell the story of how you became a vegetarian and a vegan activist. So um, what got you started as a feminist vegan advocate?
0: Well, I think uh, to begin with, I was raised as a feminist. But in 1970, as the feminist movement uh, really came to life, what's called the second wave, I attended a feminist meeting at my university. And I guess that's when you could say I consciously called myself feminist and just dove right in. I think an important aspect of feminism at that point, uh, consciousness raising groups where we were exploring what our own experiences were and what that meant uh, so that – oppression wasn't something that's individualized, but something that you find has individual expressions, but there are common, commonalities to it. I I think book clubs are probably doing that now. But um, it, it had me thinking uh, theoretically about my own life. So that in 1973, after my first year at Yale Divinity School, when I returned home and learned that a pony that We'd had, since I was in sixth grade, had, had just collapsed up on the pasture. A man came to the door and said, someone's just shot your pony. I ran with him uh, to the pasture and there was Jimmy, <clears throat> sorry, this pony, you know, that we had loved for, for years uh, and he was dead and you could still hear guns firing in, in the background in, in the woods nearby. It was a very, very small village. Um, well, that night I, I went to eat a hamburger and I took a bite and then suddenly stopped. It was like a light bulb glowed. It, it's kind of like that scene in, in The Simpsons when Lisa Simpson connects the lamb she saw with, with what she's eating, with who she's eating. It, it's this, you know, sort of moment of connection where I realized I was eating a dead cow that I would not eat my dead pony. We were going to bury him the next day with a backhoe. So why was I eating a cow? And did this mean that only animals that I knew were protected from me? It made me feel like a hypocrite. I I feel that the feminist consciousness raising I had done helped me get there quickly. <laughs> so I knew I had to become a vegetarian, and when I did, I immediately started seeing feminist connections in novels and histories and biographies and theory that I was reading. I had now moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which I often say was, I think, probably like being in Paris with Gertrude Stein in the 20s. It was that remarkable in terms of the kind of feminist energy, feminist scholarship, feminist activism that was going on. Um, And so... Uh, another light bulb went off, which was that there was a connection between feminism and vegetarianism. So I began to work first on a paper and then on a book. But at first, the book seemed to only argue, well, there's this connection and then there's that connection. It, it did not have a theory. So even though I had a good draft and I even had a publisher in 1976, I decided to. To pull it, not, not have it published. And I spent 13 years as a rural community activist, well, 12 years as a rural community activist. And all the time in the back of my mind, I was um, sort of working, synthesizing what the connections were. And as I did that, I realized that I needed to deal with the issue of dairy and eggs because whether you eat dairy or eggs is the difference between a vegetarian and a vegan. And I think there are a lot of people who think, oh, well, I've done enough. I've done enough. I'm vegetarian. I don't have to think about this. And I, I just say for people who in any way are, are trying to deal with consciousness about food, always beware when you think you've done enough. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I was working with a term from the 19th century called animalized protein. It was recognizing that, that all protein originates as vegetable protein, and then we use animals to put that food at a great cost to the environment uh, and and uh, agricultural products. They're, as we know, protein factories in reverse to produce animalized protein. And I thought, well, well, what, what's dairy and eggs? We're, we're putting that through female bodies. And so I coined the term feminized protein. Once I did that, I, I realized I had to become a vegan. And I've really never looked back. I'll tell you, veganism is a delightful, wonderful, exciting uh, cuisine, and everyday chefs are showing us new things that can be done. So it was a little longer than a soundbite, but that's my story of evolution. <laughs> I think
1: that's great. So, as perhaps the vegan feminist, as far as I'm concerned, uh, how did you come to write a book about the burger? I mean, I can imagine this book being written from any other person would have been completely different. So, how did you come to the project?
0: <laughs> well, uh, I was visiting the London office of Bloomsbury, where my publisher for the 25th anniversary edition was was based. They. Um, they publish in from the British office a series called Bloomsbury Revelations, where books that they felt changed consciousness, as it were, are are brought into this series. And for the twenty fifth anniversary edition, Sexual Politics of Meat became a Bloomsbury Revelations book. So I was stopped in to see my editor, and I was uh, uh, he had some of these books, Object Lessons books, and I just I cannot. Praise this series enough; it is so fascinating. Telephone booth, or personal stereo, or driver's license, or questionnaire. There is so much to learn, and there, they all have. Well, I, I'm trying to think of what a good metaphor is because they're all, all only supposed to be twenty-five to thirty thousand words. It, it's like you're working within a net, and or you've accepted um, a certain perimeter, and. I was sitting talking to him and I looked and I said, wouldn't it be fun to do the burger for Object Lessons? And I proposed it and they all agreed. The uh, Object Lessons is edited in New York and it has two series editors uh, who are just uh, remarkable, Ian Bogust and Christopher Schaberg, and very talented. So they helped uh guide the book through the process and I I just loosened up a little. I knew that with burger it's a trade book, uh, that I I could maybe have a little fun and and let people know that I'm a sort of heretic to the to the faith or the religion of the hamburger, but I do believe in the burger.
1: Yeah, I love that series as well. And and of the books in the series, only 3 so far are about food or food items. So there's bread, eggs, and now burger. Um we have so many single food histories on the market these days. What's so different about understanding the burger as an object in the context of that series as
0: opposed to, you know, as a cultural history? What's Well, I think that it oh, well, to begin with, I began to read the cultural histories of the hamburger. And I it, it sort of made me sick at the lack of objectivity because I, I, I talk about them as hamburger-loving hamburger historians. And they they just think every success of the hamburger was a marvelous success. It was progress with a capital P. It's very linear. Idea that if there was this hamburger and evolved, now we have all these multiple kinds of hamburgers. Uh, There didn't seem much in their presentation that recognized any of the cultural context for the evolution of the hamburger. One of them, uh, one of the hamburger historians, even writes about the empty spaces of the Midwest. Um, But in fact, when you look at how the hamburger evolved, or what were the conditions that created the ability to have the hamburger? It's all tied up with what historians and scholars call white settler colonialism, which means that the land that we know of as the United States was it was a colonial project which involved settlers taking over the land that had once been the land of a variety of Native American nations. And it's nowhere more true than in the Midwest after the Civil War. When cattle are being moved uh, from Texas north, I mean, first of all, we should footnote and say, there were no cows on the land we know of as North America until Europeans brought them. Uh, Spanish uh the Spaniards brought them in the sixteenth century, and the english the British brought them in the uh seventeenth century so anything having to do with cows is is very recent to this land and cows uh Jeremy Rifkin calls cows hoofed locusts, even in the nineteenth century in the middle of the civil war, there was an early environmental writer. And he talked about how much land cows take versus growing plants. But, uh, you know, people call it beef madness, uh, a variety of things. Between 1865, which is also when the Chicago slaughterhouses opened for business on Christmas Day, 1865, and the end of the 19th century, buffalo, uh, herds and herds of buffalo were, were killed. Uh, the land was taken over. Native Americans were uh, displaced onto reservations where instead of hunting buffalo, they were now being fed uh, beef bought by the United States. And uh, one of the remarkable innovations, uh, because cows want to move, was the creation of the of barbed wire in 1873 called the Devil's Rope. It's unusual in the sense that It is the being trying to escape who causes their own injuries. It's sort of a very perverse form of violence where your desire for liberation uh, immediately injures you as you push against the barbed wire. And barbed wire was important because it... The land of the Midwest did not have a lot of trees. You didn't have enough planks to to build or fence in cows. But cows want to move. So barbed wire combined with really stealing the land and the killing of the buffalo created the uh, necessary um, uh, conditions for there to be a hamburger. So I felt that it was important mm-hmm. coming in as a heretic, a disbeliever in the hamburger, to read the story aslant, as you would say, or read the story and, and put it into that context.
1: Right. And I was fascinated by that section. I definitely want to ask you about it more. Um, you know, I grew up on a West Texas farm with a few cows and pigs, and I was probably 15 before I knew it was barbed wire and not bob wire. Oh, Um, so I will truly never look at it the same again after reading, uh, about it. Um, we start the book with, uh, not the history of cattle farming that you've just described to me, uh, but this discussion between burger eating and American identity from presidential posturing to Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. (laughs) Um, so talk a little bit about that. What,
0: what's American about the hamburger? Well, uh, what's fascinating is that Uh, it seemed very, very important to claim it as American. And, you know, let's just put an asterisk there and say that we in the United States have this terrible custom of saying Americans and referring only to citizens of the United States, but this is what all the hamburger-loving hamburger historians do. So for them and and for almost everybody, you know, it's American. It's as American as apple pie. And one of the things I found in, in the histories is how often the histories tie in with some form of Americana. It was created for the 4th of July. It was created at a county fair. Things that are very associated with some aspect of being, living in the United States, then get associated and lend their imprimatur to this hamburger. So I begin by looking at um, this politics of, of claiming uh, the hamburger as an American innovation invention, even though some have claimed that it came from sailors coming from Hamburg, Germany, and that they brought these on, on ships to the United States, or it came by, by immigrants. Um, so I, I, I love the Herald and Kumar because there is such a, a, a wonderful speech by Kumar about how American the hamburger is and, You know, they've gone through all the trials and tribulations of that movie, and they're at the top of a hill, and he gives this marvelous speech uh, that, let me just, uh, you know, yeah. let me tell you, it's about, so you think this is just about the burgers, huh? Let me tell you, it's about far more than that. Our parents came to this country escaping persecution, poverty, and hunger hunger, Harold. They were very, very hungry. They wanted to live in a land that treated them as equals, a land filled with hamburger stands, and not just one type of hamburger, okay? Hundreds of types with different sizes, toppings, and condiments. That land was America. America, Harold. America. Now, this is about achieving what our parents set out for. This is about the pursuit of happiness. This night is about the American dream. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, you know, they're having fun, but you, but you can read straight out reviews of hamburgers in local papers from around the country. And they're kind of saying the same thing, not quite right, so. Over without the time. sarcasm. But uh, Harold, you know, Harold and Kumar then take like a zip line down to White Castle. And the thing that I thought was interesting was that Kumar was played by an actor who was vegetarian. So, in fact, he, he never did eat hamburgers. He was eating, uh, Kai Pen. was eating veggie burgers that White Castle prepared for him 10 years before they marketed a veggie burger and 12 or 13 years before they started selling Impossible Burgers. So that first chapter, what I wanted to look at was slippage. Is it mm-hmm. what we think it is? Bill Clinton was known for eating hamburgers on the campaign trail in 1992, or maybe it got blown out of proportion. But when Boca burgers are invented, they're immediately ordered for the White House, and he was scarfing them down. In fact, the Beef Council had to put out a statement saying, we're sure that he still loves his hamburgers and his steaks. (laughs) And of course, you know, the irony now is that he's nearly a vegan. So... Uh I, I wanted to set the stage that there's going to be slippage. What you think is the hamburger is probably not everything you think it is, and what you think you're eating is probably not accurate.
1: Right. In that chapter, you also kind of tell the story of the three big burger chains, uh, White Castle, McDonald's, and Burger King. Uh, so what do we learn from each of those examples? In what ways are their paths distinct, or do they have more in common than that?
0: I think they were three different pathways completely. White Castle, which uh, starts in 1921, White Castle wanted to keep tight control. Uh, well, for, well, there's some things that are the same. The things that are the, the same uh, include the fact that whoever invents or innovates the hamburger is usually not the franchiser. So I sort of had fun. Uh, <laughs> the... The, the history of the hamburger features a, features a man, the inventor, American, of course. There he was toiling on his own when he had a bright idea, the Edison of fast food, the Alexander Graham Bell of bread and animal flesh. But the difference is that Edison and Graham Bell consolidated their innovations and became the people who patented it and also the people who made the money off of it. But in the case of those three franchises or three businesses, the innovators we're not the franchiser. So, for instance, it's it, this man in 1916 innovates with the burger with some fried onions, and that becomes the basis for White Castle. But White Castle is really begun by a, a different person. Uh, I read his speech from 1964 where he talks about all this. It was fascinating. The same with McDonald's. McDonald's after World War II, the two McDonald brothers, and this is captured in the, in the movie, uh, uh that was done a couple years ago they they closed down their business and they decide to simplify the menu they're not going to have you know i uh, roller skating pe- girls going out and taking the order people are going to have to come up for the order and they're going to they designed special um uh equipment so that they could uh, make hamburgers so they they narrowed it down to i think 10 different things they offered Well, then Ray Kroc learns about it and he slowly takes over and in such a way that uh, McDonald's number one is not recognized as their store, but as the store he opened in the Midwest. Uh, He also, the McDonald's franchises really benefited from the fact that the real estate was owned by McDonald's, but the franchisers, you know, say you or I wanted to run a McDonald's in Pittsburgh or here in Dallas we would be paying <laughs> the taxes on the land and 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 uh, and rent for the land or the mortgage on the land. so uh they quickly accumulated a lot of real estate, and that's what stabilized uh McDonald's. and Burger King uh, which uh, was started in uh, Florida, they try they innovated with with uh, an equipment. In terms of how they were going to prepare the burger that was unusual and and um great, but by nineteen sixty seven they sold they completely sold and it it was sold first to a um a canadian uh group and the man who wrote his his autobiography McLemore I think it was he you could just see his regrets the way he talks about McDonald's owning their Realizing that real estate was the important thing, and and how they sold out and 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 lost control, so White Castle has kept complete control. McDonald's figured out a way to go into the real estate business, and 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 Burger King, um, sold. That was yeah, I kind of long. interesting. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, but it's so interesting that the innovations that they're they're putting forth aren't really on the burger itself, but on the business of selling burgers or the technologies that
0: make burgers right because what is a burger i mean the burger is the macerated flesh of a cow um it's supposed to come from uh 80% meat and 20% fat and there's there's a specific cut of the cow that that is preferred but we know that that really changed over the years uh and hamburgers started having something called pink slime and and other things so uh Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons you see such a desperation of advertisements uh, is that how else are they going to differentiate what is practically the same thing? It is a hunk of protein that's macerated between two slices of bread.
1: Right, and and there's nobody left who hasn't heard of them, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) yeah so speaking of cows, that's sort of the next chapter you You go back further in the history of cows in north america and you've you've already talked a little about this history of colonialism and how um cattle raising is using up land and and ways that beef eating is held up by colonizers as evidence of their superiority uh so maybe say a little bit more about that. What's that argument of of um beef eating and superiority of the colonizers
0: well um the the British were known as beef eaters, and there, in the, by the 19th century, a sort of, you know, religious faith in beef was being exported. And as they built their colonial empire, they also came up with a nutritional theory that felt that uh, beef eating cultures were defeating uh, um, rice eating cultures, for instance, in, in Asia. Because beef was for more highly evolved people. And less evolved people were more likely to eat rice or or other vegetable protein. I mean, one of the things we fail to notice in in discussions about the land that was North America is that the majority of Native American nations lived in cities we depict them in a certain way. We, we've, we've inherited stereotypes. We've seen them on TV and all. Um, but the majority of native American cultures were largely vegetarian as, uh, the historian, um, uh, Dunbar shows in her book on the history of, of native Americans in the United States that, uh, I mean, we, because sometimes people now justify meat-eating by saying, oh, yeah, I do it like the Indians, or I, I like to believe it like the Indians. Like, you have no idea what you're talking about. You are so ripping off another culture. But in any case, we, you've got the colonialists in, in New England, and Jamestown, bringing cows. And that one of the effects of that was that you need to pasture cows back to that problem of barbed wire. There's no barbed wire in the 17th century the cows are getting out of their pastures and they're trampling the plants and land of Native Americans because the colonists and Native Americans were were living cheek by jowl at that point. So Native Americans had to change their practices and start uh, building pasture as well. So, you know, incremental changes, also the need for more and more land. Um, So you've got you've got first of all this sort of usurping of land as more and more cows uh are bred and then you've got what i talked about which is the complete decimation of the midwest the the the, the prairie grass and those who lived on the land uh one of the bumper stickers that you can often see in midwest meatpacking uh cities and and towns is this bumper sticker that says, East eat, eat meat, the West was not one on salad. And so you're, you're still seeing it in the 21st century, this attitude, because what does it mean to say the West was one? I mean, the West is only one because of settler colonialism, completely displacing and, and stealing uh, the land of, of native peoples. So I'm looking, I, I'm, just, I'm looking at how the cow ends up being in a sense, becomes a tool for for whites in in displacing and and controlling uh, Native Americans
1: right and not just the cow itself but the technologies around moving that cow to market to make it into beef and hamburgers. So you've already mentioned the technology of the barbed wire, um, but you also talk about other technologies of transportation, the technologies of, of uh, efficiency in slaughter. Uh, what are some of those tools or technologies that you, you want to talk about? Well,
0: um, the, the Transcontinental Railroad. So that first, that helped in the, sh- in the killing of Buffalo because they were shooting them from trains. It's kind of like hunters today, shooting, you know, going after deer and others from their trucks, but they, they could actually shoot them from trains. Then refrigeration uh, was created, and so the trains could move the slaughtered animal parts rather than the whole animal, and that would be much lighter. 50% of an animal generally is not consumed. And this is what helps to create the rendering business, which during mad cow disease back in 1996, I called the rendering business the life support of, uh, of, of meat eating, since so much of the animal is rendered. You, you The business is you, you want to be selling every every part of the animal. So the interesting thing, uh, one of the papers I read that was so fascinating traced the evolution of the American diet, or the so-called American diet, from pig eating to cow eating, or pork to flesh, and that in the, it's not till 1960 that that eating beef for cows uh, actually outpaces eating pigs, and one of the reasons he said in the 19th century was that pig muscle or pig flesh could be dried and could a, and was tasty. But cow flesh did not taste as well dried. So with refrigeration being invented after the, uh, in the 1870s, suddenly there were more, more opportunities to eat cow flesh. So, the cow, so so slaughter gets centralized in Chicago uh, and a few other Midwestern places, but primarily Chicago. And then the, the trains could carry this beef. The, the dead cow muscle to a variety of places, especially New York City.
1: So the next chapter, uh, Woman Burger, <laughs> that one seems the most linked, I think, to the sexual politics of meat, where you're, you're looking at those intersections with gender. Uh, so in that chapter, you focus on the technology of the meat grinder, uh, both in its literal uses and its metaphorical ones. Um, so maybe talk about hamburgers, how they've been sold to women, and how women have been used to sell hamburgers to men.
0: Oh my! Well, isn't it fascinating? I, this the gender politics of the burger. And again, when I was reading all these histories, I thought, "Well, what what are you missing here?" <laughs> the person who does the most on this was the historian of, of White Castle, which which was an excellent book. And that's where we need to begin. Well, actually, we begin with 1906. Upton Sinclair writes The Jungle, and as he said, he aimed. He aimed for the, the public's heart, but he hit them in the stomach because people reading about the conditions in the slaughterhouse, instead of empathizing with the, the men, the butchers, uh, the immigrants working there, non unionized, they reacted to, I'm eating this, to the, the very few descriptions of, you know, beef sitting, meat sitting in a barrel and all that. And one uh, com- comic writer of, of the time said, you know, since then we've all become vegetarians. Um, but it made women suspicious of macerated meat. They could not see what it was in it. And so the meat grinder was a very important thing that you would, even when I was growing up, my mother would ha- send us uptown and we would pick, at, we would ask for, a slice of meat. Uh, I don't, you what it, what kind it was, and we would, uh, he would, the the owner would put the meat to a, a meat grinder, so that you knew it was fresh and you knew it was all exactly what it purported to be. So White Castle decides it's got to allay the fears of women, and it was very creative. It it, it created during the Depression a woman who was like the equivalent of Betty Crocker. And she would reach out to um, club women and come with her bags of White Castle, and then invite them back to the White Castle in their neighborhood for them to see how clean it was, so that to to make them feel comfortable that that yes, you could eat the food from there. They also did campaigns: give mother a night out, uh, you know, bring her White Castle burgers. After World War II. Uh, I think that in the 50s, there was this recognition that women, it's sort of like the problem that has no name, as, as Betty Friedan called it. Though so it did have a name, I'd call it patriarchy. Uh, but women did not want necessarily to be back in the kitchen, especially those who'd worked during World War II. And so the hamburger becomes a way of having a family event, going to a hamburger joint, which really had its heyday in the 50s and early 60s. And uh, by the late 60s, then these play areas are innovated. I'll just put a footnote here. Almost every innovation of McDonald's did not come from Ray Kroc. It came from one of the franchisers, And so did, you know, these play areas so you ha- you recognize that women needed childcare but you're not going to get childcare but you can get a place where 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 you could sit and chat with someone um so there's always marketing to women but then there was also marketing to men via women which is you know what i have called the sexual politics of meat seeing women as the burger or seeing women uh or young women, very buxom women, eating a hamburger, very salacious. Uh, I talk about Burger King and and Carl's Jr. competing for the sort of fraternity uh, consumer, the young sixteen to to thirty consumer who, you know, they're they're all sharing in the joke that women are objects and so is the hamburger.
1: Yeah, what are some of those more egregious? Um, advertisements of women as burgers.
0: Well, um, Burger King had not been uh, advertising on the Super Bowl for for several years, and when they came back, I think it was two thousand six, they did um, a a song, and it and you know the Burger King is shown, and it says, "Ladies, make the, your burger," and they're all dressed up like you know, the rockettes, uh, except that what they're each wearing is either they're a piece of lettuce or they're a piece of tomato or the hamburger or the bun. And you should it shows these women sort of jumping down on top of each other and you can hear this oof, uh, so that they're actually it's showing, you know, in a sense, pain, uh, as they assemble the burger for the one man, the Burger King or the King. Uh, the man is king. Uh, that's very egregious to me. Carl's did one where the hamburger stands in for fellatio. I mean, we just have to say that it's 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 got the term fist girl on um, on YouTube, I think, but where a woman puts her whole fist into her mouth to see if she can uh, eat the the Carl's Jr. hamburger. All of that is about uh, having a sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge uh, camaraderie with other men. Yes, it's okay to look at women like this. Yes, don't we all have this in common? And let's enjoy our hamburger.
1: Right, and maybe talk about some of those other ways that burger eating is linked to
0: masculinity. Well, the interesting thing, and and you almost feel like uh, there's this disassociation because, I, and and I guess I'll just say that what I think happens with the sexual politics of meat in general, it's not that a man can't be beefcake or a man can't be beef, but generally the man whose beefcake is clothed, is muscular, and it's something he possesses of himself. But when women are meat, they're more likely also shown with dead flesh, especially raw flesh. Often when men are, you know, beefcake, they're shown with the cooked burger, but women as, as meat are often shown, well, much more naked than the man and uh, uh, with with raw flesh. But what I found interesting was this, this sort of one-upmanship about the size of the burger, you know, the thick burger, the Whopper, the Big Mac, the big boy, the chubby boy, the beefy boy, the super boy, where they're... Um, sort of competing about what you possess. So in the last half of the
1: book, you're sort of leading us to think about the future of the burger um, and what you call the modernist hamburger identity crisis. (laughs) Uh, I was struck again in that section by just how entrenched and irrational uh, humans can be about their food choices. Uh, so you start the chapter with the mad cow disease and the crutzfeldt jacob disease and, and how those public health crises really didn't do much to shake burger eating habits, um, nor does the evidence that cattle raising is detrimental to the environment. You call it the the Teflon project because nothing will stick to it. Um, so what do you think accounts for this inability to sort of shake the burger's hold
0: Well, I'd call it the sexual politics of meat, I mean, in one sense. There was just an article in the New York Times, I think, this weekend about our, you know, fake burgers are going to help us right, save the I environment. Right, I saw that too. By Timothy, mm-hmm. Timothy Egan, and he makes a point of saying he's an omnivore, so that it's almost as though, especially, I, I've also, uh, David Wallace-Wells uh who whose new book is out about the environment? He has a terrible paragraph about how he's not a vegan and and all. And I think, uh, really, you know, it, this it's like a posturing that's saying you can trust me because you know I haven't gone that far. You can trust me because you know I don't actually care about animals. So I think first of all we have to recognize that animals are completely instru- instrumentalized in our culture but cows especially. I'm updating the pornography of meat right now and I'm adding a chapter called Filthy Cow. The attitudes towards cows in our culture. Well, look what it, I mean, old cow, you're a cow uh, about women. Cows are as though they're fat. And I mean, we have made them this way and then we blame them for being that way. But there is so much effort put into not caring about them And I think that we also are trained to believe that our appetites matter and can't be changed. Uh, That's one of the interesting things about the plant-based meats is that they're showing, you know, you can have your burger and eat it too. And it's not coming from a dead cow. It's not requiring slaughterhouse uh, workers to work in terribly dangerous conditions and non-unionized conditions. And you're, I I think, as I quoted the sexual politics of meat, um, it's hard, oh mortals, it's hard to speak uh, to the stomach that has no ears. People become convinced that their own choices don't matter. And uh, though vegetarianism did increase during mad cow disease, McDonald's immediately introduced a veggie burger in London within days in which mad cow disease was, was uh, known. I, I mean, we have to recognize that the entire structure of the United States is towards meat eating, that the federal government gives subsidies. Uh, right now, the whole crisis of dairy cows, when we know that uh, at least 25%, uh, if not more, of hamburgers comes from dairy cows who are just completely exhausted. And 25% of dairy cows, when they're killed, are pregnant. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I, I've tried to, t- you know, somebody will say, I just love my hamburger. And I'll say, 25% of, of cows who are killed are pregnant. How, how does that make you feel? Oh, I don't want to think about it. Oh, right. don't tell me. So. I I think also that people, people already know, they just don't know how to connect, you know, the heart and the mind and the stomach into into one um sort of uh unique and integrated being who can act on that knowledge. Yeah. Uh, so the last so yeah. i go ahead. I, I I guess, you know, I talk about the concept of the absent reference, how animals are absent reference in meat eating. And as a result, we don't see them, how they have to fart and, (laughs) you know, discharge manure and drink water. Once they're disaggregated, um, we don't ever encounter the facts of what it really means, the the weight of our decision. And so uh, anything that helps people sort of connect and think, well, I like burgers, but do I don't have to eat a cow to get a burger? I don't have to trample the environment through through my meat eating. I, I like to see the idea of people feeling liberated into uh, recognizing their own power. And I think in our country right now, we're encouraged to believe we're powerless.
1: Right, and so your last two chapters on the veggie burger and the moonshot burger, um, the impossible burger and beyond burger, um, what what effect do you think those alternatives are going to have on burger eating habits of the future?
0: Well, uh, I'm hoping that in 20 years, we're not eating cows. Uh, We need to act that quickly for the environment. Uh, I think the biggest challenge is can Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger. And there's a third, um, Hungry Burger, which is uh, the Hungry Planet Burger, which is really remarkable too. They've each, just like McDonald's, White Castle, and Burger King had different approaches to to marketing uh, uh, Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger, and uh, Hungry Planet have as well, Beyond Burger wanting to get... Um, burgers right into the meat departments of grocery stores impossible burgers first going through restaurants to make to, to work with chefs and hungry planet that's worked directly with chefs and gotten into high schools and hospitals and a variety of institutions and now they're uh marketed i think through the vegetarian site uh vegetarian.com i'll have to look uh and they're they're very tasty burgers too I think their biggest challenge for all three is scaling up uh, because uh, there's been such a demand. And when you see that food writers are saying, I could not tell the difference. Uh, I, I think it shows that we bring consciousness to our taste buds. And when we're able to surprise, to, to suspend the consciousness about it, our taste buds are going to assure us that we could still, be eating a burger. I think, you know, the appeal of the burger is you've got, you know, when you think about a burger that has lettuce, tomato, an onion in a bun, you've got such different textures and tastes melding together. And I think that's part of the fun of the burger. The only reason hamburgers are cheaper than plant-based burgers right now is because of federal subsidies. And the fact that uh, the use of natural resources like water uh, isn't charged to them.
1: You mentioned this at the top, but your conclusion is titled slippage. And here you get a little philosophical about the burger as an unstable sign, right? That it's always sort of been multiple and not fixed. Um, do you see the slippage of the term burger as that possible entry point for imagining the unmarked slaughterless burger?
0: Yes, I think that's a, a, a wonderful and, a, and precise way of talking about it. I think to begin with, uh, what I decided was that the hamburger was a modernist solution to protein delivery that has lost its time. It's, it's an exhausted modernist solution. It never was really a good modernist solution, except that people loved it. <laughs> but all along, from the 1890s on, vegetarian burgers were nipping at its heels. It's not like the veggie burger is, was created 20 years ago or 40 years ago. There have been veggie burgers in forms uh, from the 1890s on. And if you look, you know, to answer the person who says, why do you vegetarians always have to take the texture of meat? And it's kind of like, well, wait a minute. Before there was a hamburger, there was falafel. Before there was a hamburger, there was Indian uh, uh, fritters, uh, British fritters, and and uh, a variety of ways of nut meat uh, fritters. And uh, so, that the hamburger is a recent development in terms of what I call a single portion protein patty. And its time has come and it has passed. But that doesn't mean you have to give up a single portion protein patty. And I just want to sing the praise of the artisanal tempeh burger, which I, 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 I go, th- I, 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 they are the most remarkable. Things and uh, I want to credit Tofurky for the kind of tempeh burger that I I love, and um, we don't need to only be eating the plant based meats. We can make wonderful walnut burgers or black bean burgers or beet burgers. I, uh, an artist I'm friends with, did a chart for me uh, of uh, or did an image based on a chart I created of all the different ways to make a veggie burger. So I, I, I just like to say it's a DIY project as well for people who love to be in the kitchen and who love food. You can make a different veggie burger every day of the week for a year and, and not have exhausted sort of the delights of, of co- combining different veggie foods. And in doing that, you are hearkening to a tradition that's probably, you know, as old as 2500 BCE in southern India.
1: That's excellent. And that's a good transition into maybe talking about the cookbook, um, talking to some people who enjoy being in the kitchen. Um, So again, the cookbook is titled Protest Kitchen, Fight Injustice, Save the Planet and Fuel Your Resistance One Meal at a Time, uh, co-authored with Virginia Messina. Um, It seems to be doing what you mentioned earlier about bridging that gap between knowing and doing. Um, You even write in the introduction, it's one thing to know and another to act on what you know. Um, So where did the idea for the cookbook come from? Why write a cookbook in the middle of all the other kinds of writing that you do?
0: Uh, Well, it's not the first one. I I also did it in Living Among Meat Eaters where I, I put in... Some of the recipes that I felt had had tricked meat eaters, not tricked. Uh, I would never do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that meat eaters had loved, like a actually a, a walnut balls, which could also have been a a, a patty. But um, well, I'll tell you, the book uh, idea came to me in uh, early December two thousand sixteen because I was sick at heart at what had happened in the election that year. And I realized that I wanted to write a book and, and with, with Ginny and call it the anti-Trump diet and show people who are progressive and liberal or people who, who care about basic issues like not imprisoning immigrant babies that there is a connection between what we're eating, who we're eating and our politics and social justice. And so um, we wanted to make it an empowering book so that you weren't just reading, here here are the food justice issues related to eating animals and dairy. Here are the climate change issues related to eating animals and dairy. Here here's the compassion issues. We, we wanted to give people... information, but also the wherewithal to make small changes. Like once you understand that dairy, it's actually a very racist thing too, the way we've had dairy uh, recommendations for daily eating in the United States when the majority of people around the world, people of color have lactose intolerance, uh, which is why we shouldn't call it lactose intolerance since they're the norm. Uh, it's what would, you know, it's those of us who who uh, can tolerate lactose who are actually not the norm. Um, but we wanted to, once we we showed that here's the information, here, here's what you could do about it. For instance, uh, do, do a plant milk testing. Here's, here are the different plant milks, and here's what's really good for baking, and here's what's really good for drinking. And, and so we wanted to give people um, step-by-step guidance and empower them to see that change is possible and it's delicious.
1: Right. You, you write in the book, um, during a time when you feel disempowered, your food choices can be a source of empowerment. And clearly your work is really built on that idea that individual food choices matter on that much larger social, environmental, perhaps even spiritual scale. Um, and you you introduce the idea of 30 days of action that the, the book is sort of laid out with daily actions that one could take, um, paired with an issue that you've described. Um, So um, maybe talk a little bit about, like, one of those examples of uh, an issue and then the very practical step toward resolving the problem.
0: Well, um, a a couple would be, for instance, under compassion. What do we do about the fact that we, 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 we have a caring heart that we haven't learned how to access? So, first of all, caring involves hospitality. Uh, Caring involves uh, caring about what's happening at the border. But caring also involves caring about what's happening to the animals. And one of the things we talk about there is fishes. I mean, fishes drowned in our air. Anybody who's ever been afraid because they thought they were drowning can identify the panic and experience of not being able to breathe. Well, that's what happens to fish out of water. And so we try to um, talk about fish as an example. And so we have a, a, a vegan fish dish as a recipe or try a chicken dish because chickens often are you know, they're, they're, we don't see them as individuals or bring children to an animal sanctuary so that they can interact. Under the misogyny chapter, where we talk about the use of female animals, we then uh, provide a recipe for, uh, you know, a a vegan egg salad. And um, we have a chapter where we talk about, uh, we called it dreaming of an inclusive democracy, because one of the things that you'll notice with Trump, but it's not just Trump, is how he animalizes his opponents and he animalizes immigrants, and he animalizes especially women of color. So what we're looking at in that chapter is the process of animalizing a human. And, and where does that power come from? It comes from the fact that animals are already animalized. And by that, I mean, we already don't care about them because we don't see them as human. And we think we only have to treat humans correctly. Well, the one of the very concrete forms of oppression is to uh, target groups who you want to oppress and then equate them with or use language about animals for them. And we see that in in the current immigrant um, tragedy and and obscenity uh, that we're uh, experiencing in our culture right now. So for instance, for that chapter, we talked about pack your freezer with snacks for protest days. Um, for instance, I went to DFW right after the so-called Muslim ban, the immigrant ban was passed the minute Trump was, uh, inaugurated and it was funny. I mean, people brought lots of food. There were, uh, thin mints, which, which are vegan, but not uh fair trade chocolate. Um, so pack your freezer with snacks for protest days, like peanut butter, oat energy bars. And then, um, Stock up on vegan convenience foods so you can be out on the streets marching, and and so that you're always able to make meals with minimal uh, cooking. Uh, as I said in the chapter that talks about how we got here, uh, and and the whole evolution into believing that meat and dairy were necessary, we uh, had uh, we we made recommendations for a vegan barbecue. And um, celebrate true American cuisine, cuisine from Mesoamerica and Native Americans. And uh, then also, as I said, cooking with plant milk. So just so people don't think we're, you know, always serious, we have a vegan Irish cream that you can make so that you're not even having to give up your Bailey's Irish cream.
1: Well, I appreciated how some of the recipes are for actually make a food, but a lot of them are ideas for how to act around food
0: to, to effect some of those changes. Right. Like, what could you take to a food pantry so that you're not using uh, the oppression of animals and the whole uh, terrible weight of animal agriculture on the environment Uh, to do something good. Uh, All you have to do is stop for a second and start, you know, sort of thinking into uh, a new way of, of conceptualizing food. The minute you see that food, meat and dairy and eggs especially, are connected to social justice issues, who's doing the work of killing the animals? And more than that, who's cleaning up after those who killed the animals? That's called the third shift. They often don't come in till midnight. They're not as trained about how to avoid slipping on blood and, and, and some of the dangerous uh, implements and machines that are there. Uh, they're, they're, they're paid less than, than the slaughterhouse workers themselves. Is Is this what we want in our world? That someone has to risk... A, a limb, so that we can have cheap meat. I I think about how people say to me, "Yes, but hamburgers are cheap." Or, you know, uh, well, first of all, you can ve- live very cheaply as a vegan. But why is your hamburger cheap? You know, to unite the two books, your hamburger is cheap because it is based on oppression and inequality. It's cheap because. As slaughterhouse workers, are the immigrants doing the job that nobody will do if they can get a different job? It's, so, so uh, you know, to, to recognize that everything we're eating has a context that is a social context that impacts the whole world, really. And that we're tied together in these food choices. There is nothing innocent uh, about going out for steak and lobster. Nothing.
1: Yeah, that's compelling stuff. And it makes my last question a little bit silly, which is, what's the best recipe in the book? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: we we discussed that we were asked that by someone and we came up with my mac and cheese and um the these slow baked tomatoes and Ginny said the reason was because they both have a lot of umami with them and umami is this deep taste it's associated for me with mushrooms and tamari and When people think they're missing meat, what they might be missing is umami, or they might also be missing iron, I found. But uh, I'm not a nutritionist, but I will say my mac and cheese is a very, very rich mac and cheese that I actually created Before that, uh, the night before the conference where I met you, I knew (laughs) knew a lot of scholars were coming in that I knew. And I said, come and have a barbecue, a vegan barbecue at my house. And um, so there were scholars from all over who came in, you know, the night before. And this mac and cheese is made with a slow cooker and it's made with some vegan cheese and some vegan uh was some tofu and some coconut milk and some uh soy milk and uh it just and I throw in a, a bag of kale to redeem it as though that can redeem it. <laughs> but one of the people staying here got up in the middle of the night and foraged in the refrigerator to to get some. So I felt like that's testimony <laughs> for it. It's a it's um it's a very good recipe and uh has been approved uh by many taste testers because i That's also excellent. do a i do a vegan i used to do a vegan barbecue every summer on the 4th of july for members of a a church here in in dallas and it was mainly octogenarians and nonagenarians not only did they go back for my ribs which were made from miyoko's uh vegan home pantry but they went back for my mac and cheese one nonagenarian <laughs> went back three times for that mac and cheese so. Well, that's saying something.
1: <laughs> uh, what project are you working
0: on next? I am updating The Pornography of Meat. It's going to enter the Bloomsbury Revelation series. And I have got 260 images to place in the book, I'll update the content to. But I probably got a surplus of 100, I mean, 1,000 to 1,500 images that I'm narrowing down to represent all the, the kaleidoscopic ways that misogyny and speciesism interact in our visual culture.
1: That's fascinating. When it
0: comes out, we'll be sure and, and get together again. Okay. Well, Carrie, thanks for the wonderful questions and the close reads of the book and, and uh, uh, for helping people think about food as, as uh, an object that uh, needs a lot of thought.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, Today we've been talking to Carol Adams about Burger from the Object Lesson Series by Bloomsbury and Protest Kitchen from Konari Press. Thanks so much, Carol. Thank you.